Uh, so I wanted to start uh, by asking you all to take a look at the box that's going to appear up on the screen. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, uh, you can see there on the left side of the box, uh, you can see the word good, and on the right side of the box, you can see the word bad. I'm wondering, which of those two boxes would you put yourself in? The good box or the bad box? Oh, on the left side of the box, you can see the word cool, and on the right side, you can see the word uncool. Which box would you put yourself in? Oh, on the left side of the box, you can see the word clean, and on the right side of the box, uh, you can see the word unclean. Which box do you think you're in? Uh, the reality is uh, we all like to divide the world up into these two different boxes. We like to differentiate between the good guys and the bad guys, the cool people and the uncool people. Uh, I think you, you can see this if you just think about the movies that we watch. Isn't it true that the movies are always full of the good guys and the bad guys? Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my dad and I uh, used to like watching Western movies together. I don't know if anyone ever does that anymore. Uh, but we used to watch Western movies, and if you uh, are familiar with Western movies, of course the cowboys are always the good guys, uh, and typically they'd have white hats on, uh, and the Indians were always the bad guys. They'd usually have some sort of black kind of head covering on, uh, just to be really subtle about who the good guys and the bad guys are. Uh, if you're watching a Hollywood movie produced uh, during the Cold War, uh, you remember the bad guys during the Cold War are always the Russians. Uh, so if you're watching a kind of movie, it's always the Russians that are the bad guys. We've moved on from the Russians these days. But you had the Russians and the Americans, of course, uh, were always the good guys. Uh, there's superhero movies, you know, there's Batman and the Joker. Uh, there's uh, Superman and Lex Luthor. There's uh, I Watch With The Kids. There's PJ Masks and Night Ninja. You know, like there, there's always the good guys and the bad guys when we watch these shows. And of course, when we're watching them, uh, typically, although occasionally you get the person who loves Voldemort rather than Harry Potter, uh, but generally speaking, we resonate more with the good guys. And we kind of put ourselves in the good box because there's no way we'd ever do the things those bad people do. Uh, and maybe a similar thing happens with the labels cool and uncool. Uh, like uh, most people, I suspect one of my first experiences of this uh, was in high school. Uh, the cool people and the uncool people. Uh, so uh, a few days a week I started uh, catching a bus into town after school. And uh, You can imagine the average high school bus. Uh, there were always the cool people and the uncool people and I was new to the bus and so I was thinking, well, well you know, where, where am I going to fit? You know, I'm going to be with the, the cool people or the uncool people. And uh, So I sat down, this is my first big mistake, I sat down first in a, in a kind of set, a set of two seats and frankly the most uncool guy in our school sat down next to me. And I was like, oh, what hope did I have? You know, from that moment on, and I was kind of in high school, I was very judgmental, and I was thinking in these categories, right? Uh, and I was thinking, what hope do I have? I'm always going to be that guy on the bus sitting next to the uncool guy, the, the, the geek, you know? And you say, well, sure, that happened back in high school, but it doesn't happen these days, does it? But I reckon uh, that in your workplace, uh, similar things happen in the lunchroom, or at the conference that you attend, or your tutorial at university, or when you attend that function, there's a sense in which there's always that subtle jockeying for position. Everyone wants to be associated with the cool people and to avoid the uncool people. Everyone wants to be in the in crowd rather than an outsider. This is what we do, where we divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys, the cool people and the uncool people. 
And uh, of course, we always uh, kind of want to draw the line just there. Right, So I'm in the good box and the other people or things are in the bad box. Or I'm in the cool box and other people are in the uncool box. Likewise, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people had their own way of dividing up the world. They had these two different categories. It was clean and unclean or defiled and undefiled. On the one hand, there were those who were clean. They were the people who were considered to be pure enough Uh, to enter into the presence of a holy and pure God, the clean people. On the other hand, there were the unclean people. Uh, They were the people uh, considered not to be pure enough to enter into the presence of a holy and pure God. Uh, So which box do you think you're in before God? Spiritually speaking, do, do you think you're in the clean box or the unclean box? And if you're conscious that you're unclean before God, how can you be made clean? Those are the the kind of big questions uh, that shape our engagement with this passage today. And to help us answer those questions, let's first look at verses 1 and 2, where we're going to spend a whole chunk of time on verses 1 and 2. Uh, So don't panic if you think, man, we've only done two verses and Aaron's already been going on for a long time. So uh, verses 1 and 2, where we see this conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, And I'm saying this conflict is because uh, of the Jewish leaders' outside-in approach to spiritual cleanliness. Hopefully that'll become clearer if it doesn't make sense now. Uh, So you look there in verse 1 and you'll see some Jewish leaders come to Jesus, some Pharisees and teachers of the law, And they say to him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Uh, They don't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, So right away, it's clear uh, that with that reference to washing hands, that the conflict here is not so much about physical hygiene. They're not concerned about spreading of germs. This is a conflict about spiritual cleanliness. What makes someone clean or unclean before God? Some useful background here is that in the Old Testament, God did lay out a whole lot of different rules about what people or things were clean or unclean. So if you read books like Leviticus, for example, you'll read that dead people and animals, for example, were unclean or infectious diseases or mildew or bodily discharges or certain foods which is a big issue in this passage. God declared all those uh, people and things to be unclean, so if you had contact with those things, you weren't fit to be in the presence of a holy and pure God. Now, perhaps those rules seem a little bit strange to you. Clean and unclean things. Uh, But the point of the rules was not that God uh, wasn't a big fan of prawns and bacon, you know, like in the Old Testament, God, Jewish people don't eat pigs. It's not that there's something inherently unclean about pigs. But the point of those rules, of all these different rules in, in everyday life, of labelling things as unclean, was to constantly remind the Jewish people that their hearts were unclean. They needed to be washed clean spiritually if they were going to be fit to be in the presence of a holy and pure God. That was the point. Everyday reminders of their spiritual uncleanness. And I don't think that's that foreign to us, the idea of needing to clean ourselves up before we enter into someone's presence. It happens basically every time I go on a date with Gabby. You know, Gabby, as glorious as she is, she's not kind of perfectly pure and holy. Uh, But even when I go on a date with Gabby, I know that it's just appropriate that I clean myself up a bit. You know, I have to shower, have a shave... 
uh, you know, maybe put on some aftershave, make myself smell half decent, that kind of thing, brush my teeth, you know, like, like there's all sorts of things I have to do to make myself clean to be in the presence of Gabby. Likewise, these Jewish rules about cleanliness were supposed to remind God's people that they needed to be cleaned up spiritually if they were going to be in God's presence. The difference is that the Jews knew, well they should have known, that they couldn't clean themselves up. But there was always the promise that God would one day make a, a way for them to be made clean. Made clean on the inside. So all that's going on in the background of this question that the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus in verses 1 and 2. But it is interesting that in the Old Testament, only priests had to wash their hands like the Pharisees seem to expect here. So the priests, they're going into the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And in Exodus chapter 30, for example, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 30 verse 18, Make a bronze basin uh, uh, with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons, that's the priests, uh, are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, uh, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. It's a serious thing to enter into the presence of a holy and pure God. And so God says these priests really should wash their hands and feet before they enter in to make themselves clean. But according to the Old Testament, there's absolutely no expectation that the average Jew would be ritually washing their hands like the Pharisees expect here. Right. The only expectation, the only time it's ever suggested uh, is if uh, someone has some form of bodily discharge. If you're excited about that, you can read it in uh, Leviticus 15 verse 11. Right, but that's the only time the average Jew was expected to, to kind of go about ritually washing their hands. Uh, where did the Jewish leaders get this idea that they should be doing this? Well... It's because between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, Jesus' day, the Jewish people had lots of contact with non-Jewish people. Lots of contact with Gentiles, people they considered to be spiritually unclean. So to be extra sure that they stayed clean, the Jewish elders developed all sorts of extra traditions. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law were particularly zealous about those traditions. So that's what's going on here. In the Old Testament, God did say that certain people or things were unclean. But Jesus' point in this passage is that these Jewish leaders have completely distorted God's intention for those laws. And they've turned these laws into a means of establishing their own cleanness rather than a means, rather than a reminder of their own uncleanness. They've used these rules to, to put themselves in the clean box, if you like, and to put other people or things, things kind of out there in the world, in the unclean box. It's what I've called an outside-in approach to spiritual cleanliness. The unclean people or things are out there in the world. Uh, we better be careful we're not contaminated by them. And the truth is, this uh, is the, pro the approach that religious people always have to spiritual cleanliness. 
And they put themselves in the clean box and other people or things in the unclean box. It's usually accompanied by a whole lot of uh, literal or metaphorical finger pointing. You know, it's those people who are unclean. There's some easy targets. Serial killers are unclean. Sex offenders are unclean. Uh, In some camps, people who don't believe in climate change are unclean. People who support Scott Morrison are unclean. Right, they're in the unclean box and I'm in the clean box, you see. Those people are unclean, not me. And for other people, they might say, a little bit edgy, but there are some people who say, well, well it's, it's, those, it's those homosexuals who are unclean. It's those people who are really bad, you see. It's the people who believe in climate change that are unclean. It's the people who voted for the Greens that are unclean. See, I'm just having a crack at the left and the right. Hopefully you're all equally upset. (laughs) Right, it's those people who are unclean, not me. This is what we do. It's those things that are unclean. Like, it's not me that's unclean. it's, It's Hollywood. You know, they keep making these movies that make me lust. It's those TV shows that are unclean. It's that music that's unclean. It's that advertising campaign that's unclean. I'd be completely pure if I didn't have to drive past that billboard all the time. Religious people always have an outside-in approach to spiritual cleanliness. uh, Uncleanness is out there in the world with other people or things, not inside us. And the religious person just desperately hopes they're not contaminated. Like a person with the, uh, they're like a person who, who's. Uh, you know, we recently had holidays, and uh, our three kids for our holidays all had gastro, right? And so Gabby and I there were that, that kind of hand sanitizer constantly trying to avoid catching gastro, right? This is the religious person spiritually. There's germs out there in the world, and they're desperately trying to sanitize themselves constantly so they don't get contaminated. Little do they know that the spiritual gene is, or the spiritual germs are already inside them. They're already unclean. So in verses 3 to 9, we see that this conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders about spiritual cleanliness is really just a symptom of a deeper conflict. Right? Jesus and these leaders have very different understandings of the relationship between human traditions and God's word. The Jewish leaders uh, somehow believe, that that really without any particular biblical warrant as far as I can tell, that when Moses went up Mount Sinai, uh, Moses actually received two forms of law from God. Uh, He received the the written law, which is what we have in the Old Testament, uh, but he also received this oral law uh, that was passed down through Jewish elders. It became this tradition of the elders as it's referred to here. And the, uh, these Jewish belie- uh, leaders believed uh, that the oral law, uh, the written law, uh, told us what God commands, uh, but the oral law tells us exactly how to obey God's commands. Uh, so, in theory, they should fit together neatly. The uh, tradition of the elders was supposed to kind of faithfully apply God's word to everyday life. But in reality, what we see in this passage in verses 3 to 9 is that it tends to completely distort God's word. 
Now, maybe all that uh, is a little bit abstract, this talk uh, of tradition and God's word. Uh, So just to bring it kind of into the present a little bit, it's worth noting that this conflict about the relationship uh, of God's word and human traditions is not a conflict, uh, it's not a conflict that's dead. It's actually right at the heart, uh, one of the main differences between the Catholic and Protestant church. This is just a statement of fact. This is uh, one of the main differences. At least officially, the Catholic Church holds a similar position to these Jewish leaders. I'm treading on some ground today, aren't I? Right? They believe that their sacred traditions have equal authority with God's word. Right, listen to this uh, section from uh, the Second Vatican Council documents. Uh, I'll, I'll read it out. Uh, To the successors of the apostles, sacred tradition hands on its full purity, uh, uh, sorry, hands on in its full purity God's word, uh, which was entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord uh, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Consequently, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. I'm not saying that every individual Catholic believes this, don't mishear me, but officially, the Catholic Church says that the traditions of the church are on the same level of authority as sacred scripture. Now, this is important to understand. We are a Protestant church here at Darabin Presbyterian. So uh, even if we have certain traditions, which we do, I don't know, you just saw us come up and offer the right hand of fellowship before. That's a tradition. But we believe that all our traditions should be tested against the authority of God's word. Is there any biblical grounding for this or is it against the Bible? We follow in the footsteps of people like Martin Luther. In the Reformation in 1521, the Roman emperor said to Martin Luther, you ought to take back any of your teachings that contradict the traditions of the church. And Martin Luther said this, he said, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. My church tradition. He said, I don't accept the church tradition, uh, for these have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive by God's word. That's the camp that we're in as a church. We believe all human traditions ought to be tested uh, against the ultimate authority of God's word. And in believing that, I reckon we're doing exactly the same thing as Jesus does in verses 3 to 9. In these verses, Jesus outright rejects the tradition of the elders uh, because he sees that the Jewish leaders' devotion to this tradition has only made them hypocrites. Have a look in verse 7. Jesus refers to them. He says, you hypocrites. Hypocrites. Uh, Our our, uh, culture loves the word hypocrisy, like labelling people as hypocrites. Uh, Where where does that word come from? It it comes actually from Greek theatre. In the the, uh, Greek theatre, there would be one actor who would play lots of different roles. And in those different roles, they'd put on all sorts of different masks. And so the word over time came to be used of people outside the theatre who were really just putting on a show. People who were pretending, people who were just wearing different masks in different circumstances of life. And Jesus is saying that's what these religious leaders are like. They're just giving God lip service. Uh, their worship of God is in vain, it's empty, it's just one big, one big facade. Uh, and Jesus is very clear that they're hypocrites, that they're, uh, that they're putting on this show because they're following their traditions rather than God's words. 
And look at verse 6. Jesus says uh, that in following their traditions, they've actually nullified God's word. Uh, which is to say uh, that they've actively counted God's word as nothing. They've considered God's word uh, and then they've set it aside. The tradition of the elders, Jesus says, is an empty human substitute for the clear command of God's word. And you say, well, what evidence does he have of this? Well, look at verses 3 to 5. He points to a very specific example of it, doesn't he? Right? Because the tradition of the elders is an empty substitute for God's word, it leads to the complete distortion of God's words. And he talks about this tradition that they had where a, a Jewish person uh, could make a vow uh, declaring that all their kind of collective wealth was going to be devoted to God. Right? And from that point on, the tradition of the elders said uh, that all their wealth had to be given to the temple. And no matter how much need their parents had, that wealth was earmarked for the temple. And Jesus says that's horrendous. It rejects the clear command of God in the scripture, which says that children are to honour their parents. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. So these Jewish leaders are completely nullifying God's word for the sake of their tradition. And if you read the account of this in Mark chapter 7, Mark says they do many things like this. This is kind of the habit of these Jewish leaders. They're in the habit of rejecting the authority of God's word and replacing it with the authority of their traditions. And in doing that, they've become hypocrites. You get the vibe. While they're sitting there, ritually washing their hands before they eat, they look very, unco- they look very clean, don't they? Very pious, very holy. On the outside, they look very clean, but on the inside, they're unclean. Jesus says, your hearts are far from God. It's all just a show. So Jesus and the Jewish leaders have these different uh, approaches to spiritual cleanliness because they've got these different approaches uh, to the relationship between God's word and tradition. So look in verses 10 to 20, Jesus unpacks his approach to spiritual cleanliness. It's what you might call an inside-out approach. Just cast your eyes to verse 10. Jesus calls the crowds together. Right? He knows he's about to revolutionise the thinking of this Jewish crowd. He wants them to, to kind of be all ears. For thousands of years, uh, they've believed that eating unclean food, uh, eating something, something from outside them, could make them unclean on the inside. Uh, but Jesus flips that on its head. Right? He says, uh, it's the uncleanness inside you that makes you unclean. Verse 11, what goes into someone's mouth, Jesus says, does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. The Jewish leaders have an outside-in approach to spiritual cleanliness. Unclean things outside of them, they believe, food in this case, uh, will make them unclean on the inside. Jesus has an inside-out approach. The uncleanness that's already inside us makes us unclean. You can imagine the Jewish leaders weren't that happy about this. Uh, And the disciples are onto that. Look in verse 12. Uh, they say to him, do you realise the Pharisees were offended when they, said, when they heard this? And Jesus must have been like, yeah, you, you think? Uh, and so uh, Jesus says, verse 13, 
Uh, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Jesus doesn't have a lot of time for these Jewish leaders and their teaching. We don't really know whether this plant refers to the leaders themselves or the teaching that they're promoting. But the point is that either way, it's got no future. At some point, God is going to rip, he's going to uproot these teachers and their teaching and expose them for what they really are. That's Jesus' point. So in verse 14, Jesus says, leave these Jewish leaders alone. Jesus knows that lots of people would have had a a whole lot of respect for these Jewish teachers. These are the authoritative, reliable teachers in the local community. So Jesus says, have nothing to do with them. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 14. Even though they claim to be spiritually enlightened, they, they, these uh, like the uh, the person in uh, Romans chapter two, isn't it? The, the Jewish person that claims to be a, a guide to those who are spiritually blind. That's these Pharisees. They claim to be guides to those who are blind, uh, and yet the reality is, Jesus says, they're blind themselves. So it'd be a bit like if uh, some of you know I've got a vision impairment. Uh, if we go out at night, and you say, "Well, I'm just going to follow Aaron." Uh, that won't end well, right? We'll end up in the, metaphor, in the pit, as Jesus says here. Right? You're better off following someone who can see. And that's what Jesus is saying. So if you follow these leaders, spiritually speaking, they're blind. Uh, and if you follow them, you end up in the pit of God's judgment. So find someone, someone who can really see, whose eyes have been opened to, to the good news of who Jesus is and what his kingdom's about. Now, you might think, all oh, that's pretty clear. Uh, and Jesus thought so too. Uh, but in verse 15, uh, Peter does say, explain the parable to us. Jesus says, are you so dull? I'm sure you, you get this by now. But he, he humors them, he unpacks, uh, he reiterates that nothing outside of us can make us unclean uh, on the inside, particularly food. I was sitting in the cafe yesterday. My kids get this, right? Uh, we're sitting in the cafe and, and Charlie understood. He's three years old, nearly four, but he understands that what goes into his mouth goes into his tummy and then comes out in poos and wheeze. Uh, that he, kind of, he kind of gets that, all right? And Jesus, that's basically what Jesus is saying here, isn't he? No particular food can make you unclean because what you eat goes into your mouth and into your stomach and then out of the body, it's not that complicated. But God only ever declared certain foods to be unclean to help his people remember that they were unclean in their hearts. Which is what Jesus says in verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. There's nothing that that manifests in your life, in your attitudes and actions, that wasn't already in your heart. I'm off the hook and blame someone over there or someone here or that TV show or whatever. It's all in the heart already, Jesus is saying. It's what's in your heart that makes you unclean. And by that measure, all of us are unclean. All of us are in the bad box. I think most of us are really fine with some people being labelled as unclean. 
you, you see it in, in social media, in personal conversation, uh, serial killers, it's no doubt they're unclean, uh, sex offenders, war criminals, right? They, they, those are the bad people, the, the unclean people. But you and I, we're basically good. We're basically pretty good people. Uh, and when we're not good people, we're doing our best to be nice. Uh, and surely that's enough. Uh, several years ago, a guy named Sufjan Stevens uh, wrote a song uh, about a serial killer in Chicago named John Wayne Gacy. Maybe some of you know that song. Uh, it's, uh, John Wayne Gacy was around in the 1970s, and uh, uh, people, uh, police found the remains of his victims under the floorboards of his house. 27. 27 remains. So the song is, is about Sufjan Stevens unpacking this and you're kind of journeying through the song and you can feel in yourself you're about to self-righteously put people like John Wayne Gacy in the bad box, you see. In the unclean box. And then the last two lines of the song say this. And in my best behaviour, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. pretty confronting. I wonder if you would be comfortable with someone taking a look beneath the floorboards of your heart. There's stuff that all of us are trying to hide. I wonder if someone could just kind of prise up the floorboards a bit and take a look. Even though the uncleanness of our heart comes out all the time, we're really desperately trying to hide it from other people. Or batten down the floorboards a bit more. And the truth is we might do okay with that with other people, but we can never do that with God. God not only sees every uh, kind of unclean thing that you've ever done, but he sees every unclean attitude and inclination and, and thought that you've ever had. And that's pretty confronting. All of us are unclean. How can we be made clean? It's interesting that the Pharisees have an inside, uh, the outside-in approach to spiritual cleanliness. Uh, but their answer to how you can make yourself clean is inside-out, isn't it? Okay, you realise you're unclean, so what you've got to do is look inside yourself and do observe lots of traditions to make yourself clean, you see. Right, stuff out there that makes you unclean, but to, to make yourself clean, you've got to look inside yourself. That's the message of, of every, every other religion apart from Christianity. Christianity says that you're unclean because of the stuff inside you, but don't look inside yourself to make yourself, uh, to make yourself clean. Look outside of you uh, to the person and work of Christ. Uh, the Jewish leaders were hypocrites, Jesus says, uh, because they acted like they were clean, on the, uh, but on the inside their hearts were unclean. And that was because they rejected God's word in favour of their tradition. So we really must note that. Following human traditions will not make you clean. Doing stuff on the outside won't make you clean. Coming to church or singing songs or saying prayers or, or washing your hands or putting money in a bushfire relief bucket. None of that makes you clean on the inside. The only thing that can make you clean before God is believing the word of God. And particularly the word of the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 3. 
in, this, uh, in these verses, uh, Matthew tells the story of Jesus cleansing a man with leprosy. Matthew 8 uh, from verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Uh, In Jesus' day, of course, leprosy was really the worst condition that anyone could have. It was horrendous when it came to physical pain. Your flesh just kind of literally rotting away until you died. It led to horrendous emotional pain because people with leprosy were shunned by basically everyone in society. If you had leprosy and you were approaching another person, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so they could get away, right? Because you might contaminate them. But on top of that physical and emotional pain was the spiritual pain. Because people with leprosy were considered to be spiritually unclean. The Jewish people believed that because in the Old Testament God had said that. In places like Numbers chapter 12, for example, God said that people with leprosy were unclean. Why is that? Well, because leprosy, where this kind of rotting away of the skin... Uh, was associated with death. Uh, so if God's people, the, the, uh, if the people of God, right, the, the giver of all life, wanted to be clean and fit for his presence, then they couldn't be associated with death in that way. They couldn't be associated with someone with leprosy. They couldn't touch someone with leprosy. Which is why it's so revolutionary with what Jesus does here. He touches this man with leprosy. And notice what happens when he touches him. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. This is a wonderful picture of what happens when you believe in the gospel. When Jesus became a human being, he really did walk in our sinful and unclean world. He touched it, he experienced it, he fully entered into it. But none of that contaminated Jesus. None of that made Jesus sinful. It only opened up the possibility for sinful and unclean people like us to be made clean. Not physically clean, but spiritually clean. What happens at the very end of Jesus' life? Jesus lives his life basically touching and associating with any number of people who are unclean. It's like he's gathering up uncleanness for his whole life. And then at the end of his life, he dies the death of an unclean sinner on a rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, outside the camp, where the lepers would have been, you see. Jesus dies the death of an unclean sinner. Dies for all our uncleanness so that by faith in him, we might be made clean. Really clean. In God's eyes, cleansed of every sinful thought and word and deed, cleansed of every shameful and dirty and ugly thing that you have ever done. done. And let me add, that has ever been done to you. Some of you feel unclean because of stuff that other people have done to you. And Jesus cleanses you of that in God's eyes. If you say to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he will say, I am willing, be clean. So let me encourage you, if you sit here today conscious that you're dirty or stained or 
unclean before God. Let me urge you to put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in his death on the cross in your place and he will make you clean. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would give us humility to accept the bad news uh, that all of us are in the bad box, the unclean box. Uh, And we pray that you would give us uh, joy in accepting the good news uh, that Jesus swapped places with us. uh, That he died the death of a Uh, of a bad guy. He died the death of an unclean person uh, that we might be made clean. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen.